Well, I hope you realize what you've gotten yourself into tonight. Um, <clears throat> because Good Friday is not for the faint of heart. Um, it is not for the faint of heart. You and I gather here tonight, friends, spending some time considering the fact that the Son of God was crucified. The Son of God was crucified. But what makes Good Friday good? What makes Good Friday good? How can we say that this day is a good day? Well, in order for Good Friday to be truly good for us, we need to come to terms with a couple things. And the first is this. At the cross, the depths of sin is on full display. The depths of sin is on full display. There is nothing sentimental about the cross. There's nothing sentimental about the crucifixion. If you were to share a common cultural claim with the Apostle Paul, it goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. How do you think that Pastor Paul would respond to you? I imagine Pastor Paul would either roll his eyes or slap that person in the face. God helps those who help themselves. The Christian faith, friends, is utterly honest, brutally so, about the human condition. And it ain't pretty. It is not pretty. The human situation is so dire that only the death of God's son can address it head on. When Adam and Eve decided to take matters into their own hands and sin and death spread like wildfire. And now the whole world is sick with sin, dead in our trespasses, under sin's dominion. That is so on a cosmic scale. And so Good Friday is only good when we embrace and look in the face and just come to terms with the fact that we are in over our heads with sin. Good Friday is only, only good when we get honest about the depths of sin. The Protestant reformers, you might know this if you've been around at Grace for very long, they relentlessly emphasize the depths of sin with their understanding of total depravity, total depravity. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, was brutally honest about the grim realities of sin. He said that we were dead in our sins, like a walking corpse in our sin. The crucifixion, if it's going to be good news, sentimentalism has to die a quick death. Sentimentalism has to die the great Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor relentlessly resisted sentimentality in her short stories. You might know this. She filled her stories with tales involving murderers, sexually immoral Bible salesmen, and other grotesque characters. O'Connor says this about sentimentality. Sentimentality is an, in, is an excess, a distortion of sentiment usually in the direction of an overemphasis on human innocence. Sentimentality is an overemphasis on human innocence. Listen, friends, Christ did not willingly give himself up to state-sponsored execution because we are innocent. Christ did, died like an animal in public because the human condition really is that dire. Jesus died because we, again, are dead in our sins, as he says, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Jesus, as I say, Isaiah says, was crushed and oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter. And 
And then he utters the words, Jesus himself from Psalm 22, quoting it verbatim, why have you forsaken me? He's saying those words. He was led to the slaughter because of the depths of our own sin. Sentimentality has to die with the cross. Good Friday is not for the faint of heart. Self-improvement won't cut it either. We cannot ascend to God. We, he must come down to us. And we started celebrating that in the first Sunday of Advent, with God coming down in the flesh, moving into the neighborhood of our broken world. And we see him going up on a cross now. God has to come down to us. One author says it this way, very simply, from beginning to the end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, is so grave, is so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves to ascend to God, someone to rectify us, justify us, adopt us, save us, forgive us. It's got to come from the outside because we don't have the resources. For a good Friday to be good, we have to embrace the depths of our sin and we have to actually embrace it on a personal level as we sing songs and words like, it was my sin that held him there. Not your sin or even our sin. True of those things, but my sin. And that is to say, you have to own your sin and helplessness on a personal level like the tax collector in Luke 18 who's beating his chest who walks down justified after he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You have to own David's words in Psalm 51 as your own words. Against you only have I sinned. The depths of Christ's love will never be sweet. They will never land unless you embrace the depths of your sin and the helplessness that is there. Self-improvement strategies and sentimentality simply do not work for spiritual corpses. We need a savior to break in and rescue us. So the cross, friends, on this day, it shows us the depths of our sin, but also the depths of love. The depths of love. At the cross, we see the triumphant, conclusive love of God on full display. In funerals in our country, ones with open caskets, there's a moment that contains an intense finality to them. And here's the moment. It's when the body is lowered into the ground at a gravesite, and friends and family watch the dirt being poured over the casket and eventually the dirt runs out. The body and the casket are completely underground and then for a brief yet intense decisive moment, death really sinks in for everybody's there. There's nothing else to do. The funeral, all of it, the rituals, all of it is over death. And that moment, friends, as you know, is decisive. This is not unlike what Joseph experienced in our text from Matthew's gospel. When we read, we read of his burial, the burial of Jesus. Joseph apparently was a disciple of Jesus. And before studying this passage, I did not know that. I just thought Joseph was his dad. But there was another Joseph. And he hung around with Jesus a lot, spent a lot of time with him because he was a disciple. They probably ate together. They probably walked together. They talked together. And so the visceral details of Matthew's account involves six verbs. I don't know if you noticed this. If you look at the text there, describing Joseph's intimate 
hands-on care of Jesus' body. Joseph took, wrapped, put, dug, rolled, and left. And this kind of hands-on care and intimate care of Joseph reflects the intimate love of care of a friend. And then in verse 60, we read that after laying his master's body in the tomb, wrapping him up, he rolled a great stone in front of the tomb and then he went away. Jesus' funeral was over. And family and friends all are driving home to eat all the casseroles at home that the church folks have brought over. Death is decisive for Joseph in that moment. But Joseph thought in that moment he, when he walked away from the tomb that death had swallowed up Jesus. But what really happened was that Jesus swallowed up evil and sin and death as he walked Jesus' body into that tomb. Because Jesus, friends, decisively destroyed sin at the cross. Emphatically destroyed it. Jesus didn't die to negotiate with sin. Jesus didn't die to tolerate sin. Jesus didn't die to temporarily keep it at bay. Jesus died 2,000 years ago to obliterate sin, to annihilate sin. 2,000 years ago, the guilt of sin, which clings to us so closely, which sucks the life out of this world, which prevents us from wanting to even get out of bed in the morning, was emphatically destroyed by Jesus of Nazareth. Your sins were buried with Jesus. He drank the cup of anguish, condemnation, suffering, and death until there was nothing left. Not a single drop. It is finished. And so because of the self-sacrificial love of God, you are free from sin's power if you are his child. Because of the self-sacrificial love of God, you are reconciled to him. He didn't come as a moral teacher or a mystical sage. He came as a suffering king to, that came with one purpose, to destroy everything and anything and anyone that threatens his people. In, Paul, in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2, God destroyed and con conquered sin. Paul loves to talk about sin in certain Epistles as the principalities and powers, as this sort of alien force that's holding us down hostage. And so he uses the language of the cross to describe the bonds being broken and captives being freed by the cross. And here's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of some of Paul's words in Ephesians or in Second Corinthians two. When you are stuck in your old sin, dead life, you are incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive, right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and then marched them all naked through the streets. Love is on full display in death and sin's defeat at the cross. It is a love that destroys our sin. So we're here tonight not because of a cross that is a religious symbol that we wear around our necks and we go to Christian bookstores to buy religious art with crosses on them. 
We're here tonight because the cross, the crucifixion, was a historical event, an event upon which our lives depend. Because the reality is this, if the cross is just a symbol, we're still in our sins. Just like if he didn't get up out of a graveyard, we're still in our sins. We'll talk about that on Sunday, though. <clears throat> I love the story Runaway Bunny, and I, my students at RUF and Caroline knows I love this story, but I read this story to my daughter fairly frequently, and the story is very simple. A little bunny walks up to his mom and he says, I'm going to run away from you. And his mother says this, if you run away, I will run after you because you're my little bunny. It's the mom's response. If you run after me, said the little bunny. <laughs> if you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will run away from you. He want, the bunny wants to turn into all these animals in his flight from his mom. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said the mom, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. The little bunny keeps up with coming up with things, rocks, birds, sailboats, and his mom keeps coming up with things in ways that she will continue to pursue him, a mountain climber, wind, a gardener, a tree to land in. Because no matter where the bunny goes, the mom is relentless and focused in her pursuit. And so someone pursuing us, no matter where we run, that is a love that we long for. It's a love that we are looking for in so many places and so many relationships. And it really is the love that we see on full display in the flesh and all the blood and all the gore of the cross. Because we have said to God, I'm running away from you. I'm going to act like God and you're not. We say, I will become a God and live my life apart from you. And his response is this. If you run away from me, I will run after you. I will become a man and I will die the death that you deserve to bring you back to me. We are here tonight, friends, because Jesus will do whatever it takes to bring us home. We see on full display the love of Jesus on the cross. And he is relentless in his love. And that is good news even tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do come to you and we are grateful. Um, a, a grim evening for sure. And yet we celebrate. It is finished. Sin has been defeated. It no longer defines us. It no longer holds us captive. We are free. We are adopted. We are justified and set free because of your son's work on the cross. And I do ask that you would answer all the prayers uh, within Justin's pastoral prayer about the centrality of the cross in our lives. And I do pray, please, by your spirit, help us to resist self-improvement projects and sentimentalizing the cross to a mere religious symbol. Help us to look at our, the depths of our sin in the face that we might see the depths of your son's love. And we ask it in his name. Amen.